It's Monday evening, and Rishi Sunak's premiership is still hurtling down in flames. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing? I'm good. I can actually smell some, if I may say so myself, delicious food, which I preemptively made before Tisky, so that would be ready when I'm ravenous and I finish the show. I hope you're not too hungry that you'll get lightheaded when you're making your always incredibly articulate points. I sound like I was being sarcastic there, but I do genuinely believe that. You know that, Ash. You know that about me. Rishi Sunak has today announced there will be 5,000 new beds added to the NHS, boosting capacity by 5%. Meanwhile, the ambulance fleet will increase by 10% with 800 new vehicles. It all represents part of a £1 billion investment announced in last year's autumn statement, and it's been met with some positivity. Who doesn't want more hospital beds and ambulances? There is, though, also reason to be sceptical. Most significantly, the influential King's Fund think tank has said that unless the staffing crisis in the NHS is dealt with, it would be hard to see how today's plan would have an impact. This morning, Rishi Sunak held a Q&A at a hospital in County Durham. He was speaking to medical and nursing students and NHS workers, and they had some ideas on recruitment and retention into the NHS. I'm a student nurse at Teesside University and I'm based at North Tees Hospital. Um, as a student, it can be quite difficult. I'm a mature student. The reality is I have to work alongside my studies, which is fine. But when we're on placement, it gets quite difficult. Um, I know as a student, I'm very grateful for the NHS bursary that you, you know, introduced the £5,000. Really grateful. But while we're on placement, it gets really difficult. Do you ever or envisage any change to the funding for student, like nurses and allied health professions that might just help us when we're on placement. Because if we're doing, you know, 37 and a half hours, you know, when we're on placement, it's really hard to work alongside that. And the bursary is brilliant, but do you think there might ever be a change to funding or just a little bit extra money for students? You know, just to keep retention. You know, there are people in my cohort that have dropped out. Just financially, it can be difficult. Yeah, Lynn, thank you. And it was great to see you guys um, uh, earlier on. And thanks for what, what you're doing. And you're absolutely right. It was, we recognise the challenges that were there for many of you who are trying to juggle, work, you know, juggle being on your course and making everything work alongside. And that's why we reintroduced that bursary, um, which, as you said, and thank you for acknowledging that, because that's £5,000 a year of nurses' bursary. It was something that the RCN, you know, your union, was really keen for us to do uh, a couple of years ago. And we prioritised it. And, you know, we'll get on to other things to do with pay as well later on. But that, that's something that does, it costs a lot of money, but I thought it was the right thing to do. That's a good question, but I think that nursing student was being a bit too kind to Rishi Sunak there. Yes, the Tories did bring back nurses' bursaries, but guess who scrapped them? Yes, it was the Tories. It was George Osborne, in fact, who got rid of nursing bursaries in 2015. As a result, the number of people applying to become nurses fell by 10,000 a year. And now Sunak treats it as a total mystery that we have the staffing crisis we do. Guess what? If people stop wanting to become nurses, you end up with a staff shortage in the NHS. Now, it's also worth noting, as the nursing student in the audience suggested, that five grand won't get you very far in this day and age. And it seems pretty outrageous to me that we expect nurses working a full-time placement in the NHS to have to seek a second job to survive. It's not a great lifestyle we're offering people. It's not rocket science why there is a recruitment and retention crisis in the service. Moving on to the pay and conditions of qualified staff, Sunak was asked about current pay disputes. This was his answer. I can tell you, hand on heart, that there's more money going into the NHS and social care than there ever has been before. I can tell you that when we had to make some really difficult decisions last year, we went out of our way to protect the NHS and social care and give it even more. And that meant difficult things elsewhere, which I've got some criticism for, right? So I can tell you that, right? So overall, the pie is as big as it's ever been, and in the circumstances was, was prioritised. But then within that pie, we've got to figure out what's the right balance between pay and between all these other things that we have to do. And it's not an easy thing to get right, right? And, you know, you, we'd like new, as you said, we want a new and upgraded hospital. We need more MRI scanners. We need more support for new nurses, et cetera, right? So that's the balance that we get, right? It's a question about what's affordable within in that pie. And I don't want to put any of your taxes up. Right? That's what it comes down to. 
I, I doubt any of you would thank me if I came here and said, great, well, I've put up all your taxes, right? I don't want to do that because it's tough enough at home as it is at the moment for all of you with your bills and everything else. So figuring out how to pay for these things is part of my job. And I think we've kind of, where we are with taxes at the moment, we can't put them up anymore, right? And we need to be getting them down. So that's what constrains me on one end. And then the other thing is inflation. Right? What is the number one challenge all of you have day to day at home? It's like every time you open a bill, it's like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Right? Every single bill, every single week, and it's been like that for a while. Right? The most important thing that I need to do for all of you, right? Not just everyone working in the NHS, not just our nurses, but everyone in the country, the most important thing is to halve inflation. Right? The thing that's going to make the biggest difference to all of your lives and everyone else's life if by the end of this year, right? Bills are not going up at the rate that they have been over the past year. Now, Rishi Sunak spouted an awful lot of misleading bullshit there. So let's go through them one by one. First, he said NHS funding is higher than it's ever been. Now, that is strictly true. But what it ignores is that when you have an aging population, a real terms increase in funding can feel like a cut to patients and people working on the NHS front line. And what that means is that looking at the rate of any increase in health funding is the metric that really matters. On that front, it's clear the Tories have been far from generous. This is a BBC chart using analysis from the IFS. As you can see, under new Labour, spending on the NHS consistently rose by a large amount year on year. Under the Tories, it barely increased at all. You can also see a line which shows that since 1955, the annual increase in NHS funding has been percent that's the average increase, in no year between 2010 and the start of the pandemic did the Tories hit that average. So historical comparisons there show the Tories have not been generous when it comes to the NHS. Yes, funding has increased, but it hasn't increased in line with increased need that you get when you have an aging population. Now, the next bit of bullshit spouted by Sunak was that taxes can't possibly be increased and that if they were, it would make it even harder for nurses and other medical staff to pay their monthly bills. Now, I don't need a chart to tell you why this is bullshit because it only makes sense if you ignore the fact that taxes should be progressive. The rich are richer than they've ever been. If we tax their incomes and especially their wealth, I'm not sure you'll hear any nurses complaining. Right, The idea, if I raise taxes, that's going to make you poorer, is nonsense unless you're talking to a room full of rich people, although they'll just try and put their money in Gibraltar, but we should be stopping that, right? We should be stopping that. Finally, Rishi Sunak railed against inflation. He said nurses can't get a pay rise because it will fuel inflation. But that is, you guessed it, you're getting good at this now, also bullshit. Now, this is a point that was summarized well earlier this month in a headline from Sky News. Rishi Sunak says public sector pay rises will fuel inflation. Economists say they won't. And the subheading is also instructive here. The Prime Minister insists he cannot bow to unions' demands because that will raise inflation for everybody. Economics professors disagree, saying it is only private sector wage increases that have an impact on inflation. Now, regular viewers of this show will know that. We had a great interview with Jonathan Portez, leading economist at KCL, used to work in the civil service. What he was saying is the only way that you could have you know, public sector pay causing inflation to get worse as if public sector pay is way above private sector pay. It's not at the moment, so that's not going to push inflation. Also, I mean, you would have noticed in that clip, Rishi Sunak is saying, the most important thing is to get your bills down. Now, that obviously has absolutely nothing to do with how much we pay anyone. That's just got to do with a war in Ukraine, and it's got to do with, you know, supply chain issues, etc, etc. So paying nurses has no relevance whatsoever. Ash, what did you make of Rishi Sunak's big announcement? Well, the first thing that was really striking about that speech he was giving is how low his own expectations are. So he's addressing a room full of nurses and allied professionals. And he says, okay, well, the priority at the end of the year is to make sure that your bills aren't going up at the same rate as they have been. Now, if you listen to that, that's not a promise for bills to come down to where they were. It's not even a promise for bills to stay where they are. It's saying they're not going to go up quite as quickly as before. So that's a matter of acceleration rather than bringing them back into line with affordable levels. This business about NHS beds and ambulances, I always find is quite a deceptive framing. Now, obviously, what you'd call capital expenditure matters, but the NHS crisis isn't being caused by a shortage of mattresses or vehicles. 
beds and ambulances are really a euphemism for human labor. And the fact that you haven't had enough people coming in to work in the NHS to replace those who are leaving it, particularly when you look at the increased pressure that we have on the NHS from a growing population, an aging population, and also health outcomes in deprived areas in particular, worsening because of over a decade of austerity. And so that's where the matter of pay is really important. And you were the first person I heard make this point. You are the original and the best, Michael. But in any other sector of the economy, you'd go, okay, well, if the pay isn't enough to keep enough staff on to keep this sector functioning, you'd increase the pay. That's a basic free market principle. It's not exactly socialist or, you know, radical communist ones, a basic free market principle. And that seems to apply absolutely everywhere apart from the public sector. You've got pay awards, which are lagging well behind the private sector. Pay awards in the private sector are averaging between six and seven percent. In the public sector, they're more like two or three percent. And no wonder you're having an exodus of clinical staff and allied professionals, and you're struggling to get as many people wanting to, you know, stay in those sectors after they've completed their training. That's the sort of picture you're seeing in the NHS. It's also the sort of picture you're seeing in education. So when those professions are being plunged into crisis, because the basic fact of the matter is that the government isn't paying them enough to keep staff, it is wildly irresponsible and I think deceptive to claim that that somehow for the good of the economy. Nobody benefits with an unhealthier or a less well-educated workforce. I mean, you know, I'm no Jonathan Portes, Michael, but even I can work that one out. Which is why even Rod Stewart wants rid of them. They're not persuading anyone. I don't think that speech would have gone down particularly well with anyone watching. It was not remotely convincing. Worth saying there, Ash, you're saying public sector pay rises below that in the private sector, well below inflation. That's why we've seen another sector vote to go out on strike today. A fire brigade union ballot has been returned with a whopping mandate for strike action. They're rejecting a 5% pay increase. And this Wednesday, we're seeing loads and loads of different especially public sector workers going on strike and workers who are, you know, quasi-public sector workers, people like the, the railway workers, whereby the government does kind of determine how much they get paid, even if they're not employed directly by the government. So we'll be talking a lot about those strikes on Wednesday. We've already got some, some people from the NEU lined up to speak to. Let's go straight on to our next story. Now, it might have taken a while, but this Sunday, Rishi Sunak finally sacked his disgraced party chair, Nadeem Zahawi. The sacking followed the publication of a scathing report into the former chancellor's tax affairs. That report was by Sunak's ethics advisor, who took less than a week to find that Zahawi had breached the ministerial code a full seven times. So those breaches include his failure to declare that he was under investigation by HMRC when he took up various ministerial posts, including that of Chancellor. Sahawi also failed to declare that he'd paid a tax avoidance penalty thought to be around a million pounds until earlier this month. In a letter to the Prime Minister, Zahawi accepted his sacking, but has also made absolutely no apology. So did Sunak act fast enough to stop his own reputation from being tarnished? Sky's Beth Rigby asked him that question on a visit to Darlington. This week will mark 100 days of your premiership. Here you are talking about the NHS, but your tenure in number 10 has been more characterised about sleaze than sound government. Are you frustrated or furious even about Nadeem Zahawi's conduct and the damage it's done to you personally and your government? Thank you. So look, on, on, on the second one, right, I, you know, what I've done is follow a process which is the right process. Integrity is really important. To me, all of you guys want to see that governments run properly, that it's run with integrity and there's accountability when people don't behave in a way that they should or when something doesn't go right. And that's what we've done. So we have an independent advisor. That's what the government has. So it's not you know, it's not it's not me who's doing it. And what I asked when all these questions started coming to light about uh, Nadim Zahawi, you know, I asked the independent advisor to get to the bottom of it and to provide me with the facts 
And then on the basis of the facts, which he did relatively quickly over the past of last week, I was able to make a very quick decision that it was no longer appropriate for Nadeem Zawi to continue in government, and that's why he's no longer there. Um, that's what I've done. It relates to things that happened well before I was prime minister, so unfortunately I can't change what happened in the past. What you can hold me accountable for is, like, what did you do about it? You know, What I did as soon as I knew about the situation was appoint somebody independent, looked at it, got the advice, and then acted pretty decisively. Sunak was putting a lot of weight on his decisiveness there. He was singing a very different tune less than two weeks ago when his spokesman said that Zahawi, quote, had the Prime Minister's full confidence. The Prime Minister was also keen to stress his integrity. However, in the past, he hasn't seemed too bothered by breaches of the ministerial code. This exchange between Tory MP Bim Afalami and journalist Aisha Hazarika took place on the BBC's Politics Live. Suella Braverman was sacked because of breaching the ministerial code. Then within six days, she's back in under Rishi Sunak. If he is really going to follow this mantra of integrity and, and, and really believing in the ministerial code, then he has got to revisit Suella Braverman and he's got to be very tough with Dominic Raab. Do you agree? Well, I don't think... I think Suella, the point about Suella has already been made and she the Prime Minister She breached the ministerial has, well, code. And, and that has been accepted under the previous... Sorry. She was um, left under Liz Truss's administration. For six and then, days. And no, and then the Prime Minister said she's decided to, you know, she's, she's owned up to her mistake and she won't do it again. And then he reappointed her on that basis. So do you think Nadeem Zahawi should be allowed back in if he says, look, I'm really sorry I shouldn't have done that? Do you think he should be allowed back in? Well, no, but that's not really the point. You've got to look at every individual circumstance. I don't think we should live in a world where in public life where if somebody makes a particular mistake, and I repeat, I'm not talking about Nadim Zahawi, I'm talking more broadly. If somebody makes a mistake in public life, that means they're banished forever. I don't think that's a sensible view. There's a big difference between being banished forever and being banished for six days. I think there's some, there's some middle ground that could be found there. In any case, Zahawi hasn't been the only member of Sunak's cabinet under recent investigation. Justice Secretary Dominic Raab is currently being scrutinised for complaints of bullying against him made by between 24 and 30 civil servants. That inquiry is due to end in the next few weeks. On the detail of that investigation, The Guardian reported this. Officials close to the inquiry are said to have been shocked by some of the claims that have emerged, including individuals being physically sick before meetings regularly in tears and, in more than one case, left feeling suicidal as a result of the alleged behaviour. Also on the horizon is the outgoing, or ongoing, sorry, investigation into Sunak's former boss, Boris Johnson. He's subject to an MP-led inquiry into his conduct during COVID, with hearings expected to begin in the coming weeks. The reason why I'm chortling to myself is that that Bim Afalami clip was absolutely extraordinary. I've never seen somebody physically attempt to swallow their own tongue before. <laughs> he was he was stuttering and a stammering because his body wouldn't let the bullshit come out. You could see he was straining against every molecule and sinew and cell of his being. And that's because it is ridiculous. It's indefensible to say on the one hand, yes, we stand up for integrity and swift action. But on the other hand, we'll drag our feet around Nadim Zahar. We hide behind the pretense of an independent investigation, having previously said you stand by him entirely, then sacking him whilst the whole time, Suella Braverman is warming her feet beneath the cabinet table, drawing up plans for her dream Rwanda flight after having previously been forced to step down for breaching the ministerial code and coming back just within six days. That is, I think, self-evidently ridiculous. But I think you raise a really good point, which is what impact does this have in terms of the wider electorate. I don't think that terms like breaching the ministerial code have got a great deal of salience to people. That is a massive way of signposting this story doesn't impact your lives whatsoever. But I think it does two important things. The first is, is that having a miasma of sleaze around any government is bad for them, right? If they're a government that is otherwise doing things, being seen to carry out its manifesto commitments, doing a little bit of strategic helicopter money here and there, then maybe people are willing to look past or indeed forgive it. But in these kind of conditions where 
everybody is pissed off at the Conservative Party, that is certainly not going to help. And it's like I said last week, each individual story doesn't matter, but the accumulation of them does. So what we remember from the John Major era isn't specific sleaze stories. It is the overall climate of sleaze which engulfed the John Major government. And that is how I think people perceive politics. It is a vibes-based art, I think, rather than science. The second thing which is important is what this does for Rishi Sunak's base of support within the party. He is a very precarious leader. Everybody knows that he was the second choice. He was basically the first alternate who didn't make the cheerleading squad, you know, even though uh, daddy made a sizable donation to the gym and bought everybody new pom-poms, all right? Like he had been uh, positioned as the favorite by pretty much everyone in the media apart from the Daily Mail. He had been pretty well liked by many people within the lobby. He had a senior cabinet post under Boris Johnson, also a Brexiteer, and he couldn't get over the line. He was blamed by people for betraying Boris Johnson and also disliked by others for having stuck with him for so long. The difference in tone that he struck with Liz Truss made him quite unpopular with many of the party faithful. So his base of political support within the Conservative Party is very, very shaky indeed. It was a torturous and laborious exercise to get him to the position of sacking Nadim Zahawi because, quite frankly, he wasn't sure whether he could afford to. And when it comes to somebody like Dominic Raab, who I believe backed Sunak in the summer's leadership contest between himself and Truss, it's going to be even more difficult for him. His allies are few and far between around that cabinet table and in the conservative parliamentary benches. And he's going to find himself quite isolated, which is not good for an embattled and unpopular leader. Let's move away from Westminster now. Tensions are mounting in Israel and occupied Palestine with over 30 Palestinians and seven Israelis killed in the past month. 17 of those deaths occurred over just two days last week. On Thursday, 10 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank, with nine being shot in an Israeli raid in the city of Jenin. The dead included a 61-year-old woman. A further 20 people were injured by live ammunition during that attack. The death toll from the raid is the highest in a single Israeli operation since the UN began recording that data in 2005. Then on Friday, seven Israelis were killed by a lone Palestinian shooter in an Israeli settlement in East Jerusalem. That was as they were leaving a synagogue after prayers. The Israeli police say the gunman was a 13-year-old boy who officers then shot dead. The violence comes in the context of a shift even further to the right in Israeli politics. Benjamin Netanyahu is back in power in coalition this time with Jewish ultranationalist parties. His government wants to build more Jewish settlements in the West Bank, as well as to relax the rules of engagement for soldiers and police. For their part, the Palestinian Authority has ended their security cooperation with Israel in the occupied West Bank. They argue that Israeli aggression has made any cooperation impossible for now. To discuss these latest developments, I spoke earlier to Dr. Yara Hawari in Jerusalem. Dr. Hawari is a senior analyst at Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. And I began by asking her if the violence of the past month was in any way unusual. No, it's not unusual at all. And, you know, I think something that's been lacking in a lot of the media reporting over the last week has been framing it in a much larger context of violence. If we look at last year alone, I mean, last year was the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank since 2005, uh, the year that sort of considered the end of the the second intifada period. Uh, And this month, you know, the month of January, we've seen over 35 Palestinians um, killed by Israeli regime forces. So it's been, you know, quite a a deadly time. And and the peak of the violence was last week in Janine refugee camp, where Israeli regime forces invaded and, and proceeded to commit what can only be described as uh, as a massacre. So this is really, you know, a continuation of, of violence. And, and there are always these sort of moments that spark the interest of the media and they're sort of framed as this, this sort of escalation or, you know, an, an increase in violence when the reality is it's for Palestinians. At least it's it's been really a continuous process. I think that the killing of seven Israelis by a lone Palestinian 
gunman that that is more unusual and i'd like to get you to talk about that and i suppose also what the response of of israeli forces or the israeli government might be to that well we've seen you know an increase in in armed resistance by palestinians uh certainly over the over the last six months, um, it's been uh, a tactic that, that more Palestinians have, have been engaging in. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to note that that operation was carried out in an illegal Israeli settlement in the eastern part of Jerusalem. And even more importantly, it's the home of the Israeli regime army central command. It's the headquarters of the, basically, the Israeli regime forces that, that operate in the West Bank. So that's that's a very important context to to what exactly happened in that that operation. But I think, you know, the Israeli regime always uses these these moments of armed Palestinian resistance to to really unleash retaliation in a big way on Palestinians. They use it as an excuse and and quite often as a sort of a political pawn to to gain more favor from the Israeli public. So, you know, I think what we're going to be witnessing over the next few weeks, unfortunately, is, you know, all out collective punishment against Palestinians for that attack. And so there's currently a lot of division within Israeli society and Israeli politics. I'm thinking especially protests at the moment, which we've seen against Netanyahu and his sort of attacks on the independence and the power of the Supreme Court. Does any of that have any relevance to the people of Palestine? Not really. It's not been a, a central sort of discussion point for Palestinians. What we've seen are these large so-called pro-democracy protests, which are really, you know, Israelis protesting this judicial overhaul that's taking place um, within the, the, the Israeli regime at the moment. What's been lacking from those protests is any discussion about the Palestinians, the millions of Palestinians that the Israeli regime rules over um, and undemocratically. Um, so that really has not been a, a key discussion for Palestinians because, you know, at the end of the day, across the, the Israeli political spectrum, there's a wide support for the continued oppression and occupation of Palestinians. You know, this isn't an issue that's only on the right of the Israeli spectrum. It also is very much something that exists and thrives on the left of the political Israeli political spectrum. You know, we don't have to go that far back to look and see in uh, that the in 1967 it was an Israeli. Labour government that actually spearheaded the illegal settlement enterprise. So this is really, you know, the oppression of Palestinians, the colonisation of Palestinian land is is a cross-partisan issue in Israel. You spoke earlier about hopelessness and also armed resistance. I mean, people have been suggesting we might be about to see a third intifada. I mean, do you see that as a likely prospect? Well, I think, you know, we need to explain what the word intifada actually means, um, because I think maybe... Some people understand it differently. In, in Arabic and for Palestinians, it's, you know, it's referred to as an uprising, a collective uprising. And I think it's often used by sort of mainstream spaces as a term just to refer to, you know, Palestinian violence. But in reality, it's, it refers to a collective uprising. The first one we saw was in uh, the late 1980s. It was the first Palestinian intifada where we saw a whole host of different tactics being used, uh, you know, from civil disobedience to boycotts to, to general strikes to stone throwing to protests, etc. And the second intifada was more focused around armed resistance, um, but not exclusively so. So, you know, when we're talking about a third uh, intifada, we're talking about a collective uh, popular uprising that could take place in sort of a, a variety of different forms. And I think those things are really difficult to, to predict. You know, they're certainly not sporadic. It does take quite a lot of organising and, and network building. But I think it's it's hard to predict when that moment will happen and when that sort of collective action will take to the streets. What would that look like? And I suppose I'm interested in sort of questions of strategy. I know there isn't, you know, just some coordinating committee telling everyone what sort of resistance they should be engaging in. But I mean, let's just take this attack last week. Now, you know, most people in the Western media would call it a terrorist attack. You've called it armed resistance. I suppose I'd maybe like you to expand a bit on that. I mean, you've said this was a military headquarters nearby, but presumably, you know, they were killed in the context of being civilians, even if they were occupying land. You know, how has that been received? Um, I suppose, or do you think that that is the kind of action that might be emulated, or do you think people see, or many Palestinians see that as something which is you know, a bit irresponsible and could create or provoke a, a real, real backlash that could ultimately be to the detriment of Palestinian people? 
That's a really difficult question to, to answer because, of course, you know, I can't speak on, on behalf of Palestinians and there's a whole variety of opinion among Palestinian people. But it is, you know, quite clear that the Palestinians lack leadership, um, that there isn't, you know, a, a general Palestinian strategy like uh, like the one, you know, we saw during the first Intifada period, which, you know, saw a collective unified uh, leadership among, you know, trade unionists, among students, among uh, political parties, women's groups, etc. That's something that we do not have uh, at the moment, at this present time. So there, there does lack that sort of Palestinian overall strategy when it comes to resistance. Of course, there are certain elements in, in civil society spaces that are trying to, to fill those gaps, um, but that can never fill the gap of, you know, uh, Palestinian leadership. And the Palestinian leadership has consistently failed the Palestinian people over um, over the last few decades. And neither are they representative nor democratic, but they are most importantly not providing that vision, that future vision for liberation. And I think that's something that, that frustrates Palestinians the most uh, on the day to day. Finally, let's talk about Antony Blinken. I mean, that's the, the headline in much of the media today, Antony Blinken as Secretary of State for the United States, or Joe Biden's representative, is visiting Israel and Palestine. Is that remotely relevant to, to anyone in, in Palestine? Does anyone have any hope that the Americans or anyone externally could restrain the Israelis or support the renewal of some kind of peace process? I mean, I'm smiling because it's uh, because we definitely don't place our hope uh, in, in Americans or American foreign policy. I mean, I think it's going to be a very textbook visit in which the US reiterates its support for the Israeli regime, not just diplomatic support, but its continued financial support of, you know, billions of dollars a year. It's going to do the standard, you know, we support the two-state solution, and yet they continue to provide impunity for, for Israel to, to kill the two-state solution. So I think it's going to be a very sort of textbook US visit with very sort of little outcomes for the, for the Palestinian people. So it's actually also, again, not something that Palestinians are talking about, certainly not Palestinians outside of the elite political spaces. It's definitely not something that we're talking about as, a, as an important you know, marker in this period of time. That was Yara Hawari speaking to me earlier today. And the, the, the one thing she said really struck me there, this idea that, you know, the Palestinians don't have the same leadership they used to have. And I think why that's so tragic is because this is so often the case when you've got sort of an, an occupying force that is trying to defend their power. They just systematically destroy any organic leadership that might emerge from the people who oppose them. So be that in the form of, you know, just killing them or... Um, causing internal strife within opposition movements, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a really... The word that often comes out is hopeless, isn't it? And I think that's, you know, why people are suggesting some kind of third intifada um, might be about to happen or, you know, it could be possible. Let's move on. A new report on the BBC's coverage of economics has found that its journalism just isn't good enough. The report, which was commissioned by the BBC, claims that the corporation's journalists sometimes mislead their audience when it comes to the nation's finances. That's because they don't know enough, reach for lazy analogies, and oversimplify. The authors say this, We think too many journalists lack understanding of basic economics or lack confidence reporting it. This brings a high risk to impartiality. In the period of this review, it particularly affected debt. Some journalists seem to feel instinctively that debt is simply bad, full stop, and don't appear to realise this can be contested and contestable. Several general assumptions seem to lurk like this either unnoticed or uncorrected. Others that outsiders observed in the BBC coverage were, quote, more public spending is good and tax cuts are good. Whilst these views might seem to make intuitive sense, all favour some interests above others. Too often, it's not clear from a report that fiscal policy decisions are also political choices. They're not inevitable. It's just that governments like to present them that way. The language of necessity takes subtle forms. If the BBC adopts it, it can sound perilously close to policy endorsement. Now, pointing out that economic choices are always political is something we do on this show all the time. Something actually you might remember Jeremy Corbyn talking about when it came to austerity being a political choice. So why can't the BBC manage it? The report offers an explanation in this passage. The Westminster frame on things is the elephant in the room here, said one senior journalist, 
who argued that the political angle of the day often determines coverage, whether the specialist judges it significant or not. Once you set that ball rolling, said another, who argued that a Westminster announcement obliged him to serve up a predictable set of reactions. Quite an amazing thing to say. He felt obliged to serve up a predictable set of reactions because of a Westminster announcement. Now, one example that authors point to is the economic reporting following the 2008 financial crisis. They write this, after 2010, neither Labour nor the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition took public positions in favour of higher borrowing and debt. One respected academic who did, and says he was far from alone, argues that an anti-debt sentiment in the media took hold at that time. That is, the politics began, in his view, to distort economic reporting. Another criticism involved journalists' overall reliance on a pretty shoddy analogy, one we can thank Margaret Thatcher for, thinking that a nation's finances should be run like a household budget. So in this BBC report, they say that states don't tend to retire or die or pay off their debts entirely is one way national debt is not like a household or personal debt, not like a credit card, for example, and why analogies with household debt or suggestions the government must pay off or pay down the debt can cause intense debate. Clearly, pithy, accessible metaphors are valuable to journalists and audience, and paying off is a tempting phrase even to those who know the arguments because it seems to express the idea that there must be some degree of discipline over debt even for a state. The report doesn't make any firm recommendations about how the BBC can achieve more impartiality when it comes to economics, although I suppose giving people some economics 101 training and maybe getting the journalists out of Westminster. I mean, it seems really here that one of the problems is people taking a lead from whatever each party is announcing. I thought that point about 2010 to 2015, where you didn't have either of the parties arguing against austerity, if Labour aren't arguing for it, if the Tories aren't arguing for it, if the Lib Dems aren't arguing for it, just doesn't exist as a position. I think that that's a Quite an important summary, actually, of how the BBC works. On the one hand, I think I, I agree with those quotes I just read out, and I think it's been incredibly damaging for the country. I think the BBC buying into and reinforcing the austerity narrative is one of the reasons we have the crises in all the public services we talk about on this show every week and why we have stagnant wages, et cetera, et cetera. The, the disastrous state we find ourselves in as a country. At the same time, it's 12 years too late. It, it, it's an interesting report by the BBC about the BBC. What do you make of it? Well, I think that's one of the things which is unique about the BBC, which is for all of its flaws and all of the ways in which it adopts right-wing talking points, political objectives, and also staffing, it has room for self-criticism in a way that I don't think any other media organisation does. And that's because it is much more of a public service than it is anything else. It is a unique kind of institution within uh, the British cultural landscape and within the British establishment. So I think that these things are really welcome. Something which can prompt self-reflection within the BBC is welcome. There are just a couple of things that I would perhaps add to it, which is one, I think that media as a whole has become really led by Westminster politics. And even something like the show that we do, Michael, we do talk about things which aren't just in the Westminster news cycle, but even me and you find ourselves kind of pulled in by this gravitational force. And part of that is because we exist in a media ecology where everyone has to talk about the thing that everybody is talking about. And that thing is Westminster. I think that you have had a huge overvaluation in the status of political journalists, in particular the lobby, those sacred few who have parliamentary lobby passes and who uh, lead on what the political reporting is for their respective newspapers or broadcast channels. And one of the things that's happened in particular with newspaper coverage is that as newsrooms have shrunk and lots of kinds of original news gathering capacity has been cut back on, is that the news desk is led by your politics correspondent. So whereas in the 70s and 80s, you might also have an industrial relations correspondent, you have correspondents who are in different parts of the country and everybody's phoning into the news desk, you have the decline in status of those kinds of reporters, if they exist at all, 
and you have the sort of you know preening over weaning status of political reporting on the other hand and so that means that yeah economic stories are totally subordinated to political framing and unfortunately you've got a cadre of journalists where I do think you've got a few who are genuinely curious and intellectually rigorous they're not always liberal or on the left even you've got a couple of right-wing journalists who I think you would put in that category as well of, of rigorous and curious individuals but most of them can either be classified as just wanting to fly with the flock and puff up their own feathers and, you know, do anything for their own career advancement or profile and others who are, you know, genuine right-wing ideologues. And so that kind of structural weakness within the lobby, it makes for a really bad culture when it comes to economics reporting, because you don't have the incentive to find out a different story from what everyone else is reporting. You don't have the political room to go, okay, well, this is the sort of received orthodoxy. Is it true? Because if you diverge too much from what the rest of the lobby are thinking, you're seen as, you know, a weirdo and a crank and you're totally out there. And also the third thing is that you you don't have people who I think are coming at it from the perspective of, am I wrong? Is the thing that's coming out of my mouth right now wrong? You have a crazy amount of certainty and also a real suspicion of people who are saying anything different. I think it's a really unhealthy media culture. I think you're right that, you know, some of it is like resources and laziness, because the easiest thing to do on any story is to say, this person said this, this person said this, because you don't want to do any research at all. <laughs> you just say, this guy said this, this person said this, there we are, you can make up your own mind as an audience. And I do think that's like, like what political journalism often is. Labour say this, the Tories say this, one source in Whitehall said this, and that was it, right? And I, I, I think when it comes to issues like economics, it's, it's, it's really damaging because these things really matter to people's lives. I suppose one thing I wanted to know from you, Ash, is, you know, they've done this about economics. I feel like they could almost write a report about so many other aspects of journalism. And the thing that really stands out to me, I think here, and I know, I think because it was so painful for everyone involved, was the labor anti-Semitism crisis, where so little of their reporting was, all to, you know, you can put it in quote marks or whatever, the, the huge row that went on for years about labor and anti-Semitism. And it, all of the articles were barely ever about the the, the, the supposed anti-Semitism that was going on. It was always about this person said this, this person said this, Labour haven't responded in a way that this person liked. This, you know, it was, it's just, who do we go to? We go to a bunch of MPs and the story goes on and on and on because all political journalists tend to do is chat to MPs. And so if backbenchers want to talk about it, if ex-cabinet members want to talk about it, if people in the shadow cabinet want to talk about it, then suddenly that's the issue. And I think that's why the reporting of Labour when Corbyn was leader was just so bad, because no one was particularly interested in writing about this is the facts of what is happening here. It was just this MP says that, this MP says that. And then often their questions are literally formed like that. But if it's not a huge row, why is Margaret Hodge saying it is? And then that's it's sort of the laziest question that you can possibly do, because you're saying, yeah, but some people say it's not. And then you can say, well, can we look at the first? Well, would they really? Are you calling that person a liar on telly? It's lazy and silly. I think that's like um, such a perceptive comment because it was just endless reaction and reaction to the reaction and reaction to the reaction to the reaction. And what the story is or was at the time, was so hard to discern. And still, there are new stories from that time where I'm like, am I even remembering this correctly? Because the signal-to-noise ratio was completely out of whack. And so the thing that I can remember was the kind of howling chorus of people insisting there was something that had been a real dreadful, horrific evil was going on. And yet what that evil was, you know, if you could tell me, okay, well, what did Jeremy do? What did he say? Okay, these expulsions, like who, who are they and, and what have they done? That all got lost in all of the noise. And I think that like, there's some ideological motivations there as well. You had a lot of people in the lobby who found that their contacts within the Labour Party were no longer useful to them because the left were now in power. So it doesn't really fucking matter if you've got Yvette Cooper and Ed Balls around your house like every other week for dinner because they know absolutely fuck all. 
So I think that there was a sense of, of um, personal aggrievement on the part of many lobby journalists going, I got this wrong, I didn't call it, and now I'm kind of, you know, my value as a lobby journalist has declined because, you know, it's the leadership and they don't want to talk to me. But they found plenty of other people who wanted to talk to them and you had a, a mutually beneficial relationship between Labour right MPs. I mean, a classic example being Neil Coyle, who would, you know, bring up the Observer, you know, talk to friendly journalists, give them the story that they wanted, which is, uh, you know, Jeremy is, you know, the most evil thing since smallpox. Um, the journalists get their news line. Neil Coyle gets his political objectives of undermining the left-wing leadership served. And then as soon as he no longer served that purpose, everybody noticed that he was a fucking liability again. So yeah, that that is how political journalism works. And we saw what that did in terms of how much it it poisoned the you know, well of public discourse and political understanding. And we saw what that did to our democracy. And we saw what that did in terms of, you know, democratically legitimate elected party leaderships being able to get a fair hearing. But that is a dynamic which also happens in in almost every other part of, of reporting as well. I mean, the thing that I always remember from that time is when Labour announced their green policies. And there was a policy, I think, of planting two billion trees. Now, this is a process in which a lot of machinery is involved. I'm not a professional tree planter, and I know that that's the case. But when the you know promise of two billion trees came out, you had all these lobby journalists scoffing, going, how is that even possible? How is that even possible? If Jeremy Corbyn had to plant two billion trees... I mean, we've we've measured his, uh, you know, estimated life expectancy, and the most he could do is tops 150. What a silly policy from Labour! They'd be like, you'd have and, to plant one tree every second for four decades. It's sort of like, well, you know, that's not how it works. Hey, you've got this machinery. Of, I mean, as I say, I'm not an expert, but I remember they for a whole 24 hours they were running with this whole. Just and then everyone's like, this is this, this, this kind of normal amount if you're talking about trees. But that's the thing is that like everyone wants to be first more than they want to be right, and you've got a structure of political journalism which rewards you being first and doesn't really care if you're wrong. As we always talk about with austerity now, like the FT, the Financial Times especially, the Economist sometimes, but the Financial Times especially, now is really anti-austerity at the time when austerity was being Im- implemented. I mean, we, we, you know, we haven't moved beyond austerity, but it's not the, we're just at a low level of government spending. But when you had the cuts happening, the FT loved it. Now they hate austerity. The they say, well, God, what a failure of, of economic policy, but no one's been disciplined. There hasn't been a public apology. It's just like, oh, why would you read an article from 2010? Why would you read old old articles when you can read current articles? The, the FT are like, who could have possibly thought this was a good idea? This was obviously so stupid from the start. We want some accountability. Enough of your reports. We want, we want, we want um, heads. Not really, not really. This is don't ban us YouTube. That was a complete joke. I have respect for the safety and professionalism of all of Britain's journalists, especially the lobby. Long may they live. I'm going to stop talking about life and death. We don't like most of the lobby, but we, we're, we're very moderate people. Um, <laughs> let's look to the week ahead. Ash, strikes on Wednesday, 100,000 civil servants, 70,000 university staff, I think about 100,000 teachers, six-form teachers in England, train drivers and national rail, and bus drivers. That's London only, 1,900 people. What's the significance of, I mean, it was sort of billed as a bit of a general strike. I think they were coordinating to not only obviously protest their wages and conditions, but the coordination was also to kind of protest the trade union laws, the restrictive trade union laws, the TUC, I think, suggested Wednesday as the date where they could all coordinate to make that political point. What should, obviously, we'll be covering it on on the show, as you can guess, but what should our audience be looking out for? Well, for me, the thing which is really striking about these strikes is that level of coordination because I think it does um multiple things is that one is that it maximizes its political impact one is if you have basically every public service or many public services shutting down or operating on a significantly reduced service that's something which 
journalists can't ignore, politicians can't ignore, and those people, you know, the those sections of the public who work in the private sector also can't ignore. It is a huge thing. The second thing that it does is that it also really impedes the ability of the government to play workers off against each other. Now, that has been their favoured strategy, no matter what kind of strike is going on. So when it came to railway workers going on strike, you constantly had uh, Mick Lynch being told about how astronomically high the pay of train drivers is and compare that to nurses why should train drivers go on strike and then you've got you know the nurses going on strike and it's like what about your patients you know you don't see teachers uh you know risking the education of their students in this way and now the teachers are going on strike and so are the lecturers and the civil servants and so that kind of unity and coordination makes it a lot harder to turn workers against each other to play off their interest. And that's something which I think is going to really worry the government. Final question for you, Ash. On Friday, I know that between the hours of 7 and 8pm, you'll be watching Tisky Sour. What new option will you and the rest of our audience have to watch from 8pm on a channel we don't promote very much? Is this a test? Because I it's don't a test. Know. It's a test. I didn't, I didn't tell Ash that we'd be talking about this because we've got four minutes spare. Recently resigned cabinet minister interviewing... The love of her life. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Is it camp icon and best-selling romance novelist, Nadine Doris? Yeah, it's our Nadine. Safely away from the levers of power, um, but still the camp icon I've always secretly thought she was. I can finally admit it now because she can't do any damage. I mean, I don't know if she can't do any damage, all right? She's a, she's a powerful woman. But for me, the realize that, when, when I realized that Stockholm Syndrome had truly kicked in was when she did that online safety bill rap. Like, after that, I was like, I'm sorry, man. Deport me into the sun if you must, but I'll be calling you Queen from now on. And who's she going to interview, just so we do this comprehensively? Boris Johnson? Yes! Yeah, the, the launch of her show is Nadine Doris interviewing Boris Johnson. So I imagine we'll have some entertaining clips for you on the Monday show because I can't see that going without any hiccups. Ash, it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this Monday evening. It's been a pleasure joining you. I have Stockholm Syndrome for you as well, Michael. <laughs> Wait till we get back in the studio. You're never going to be able to leave. There's going to be no cooking your dinner before seven and then eating it at one past eight when we're back in here, Ash. A pleasure, as always. And a pleasure being joined by all of you at home. And we'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm talking about the hundreds of thousands of people on strike. Already got some interviews lined up for that. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.